Blog Talk Radio. Angeles, California. Welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show with your host, Shaw McCain. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Shaw McCain. I'd like to welcome listeners to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show. My show is created to provide an open-minded platform that welcomes the gifted and extraordinary thinkers from every walk of life and circumstance. Please follow the Paranormal and the Sacred on Facebook for upcoming events and special speakers from around the world. We will translate into many different languages for our listeners outside the country. The call-in number tonight is 619-924-9744. Uh, during the show, I can take your questions in order in chat, and you may call in with your questions to speak with our guest tonight. Uh, please, no buzzkillers and chatter on the phone, and uh, just play nice in there, and we don't have to do anything uh, bad to you. Anyway, um, I have a few announcements to make. Uh, uh, Marilyn Salas, uh, she has an energy healing in nutme- at the Nutmeg uh, Ojai House. I'm getting tongue-tied. Uh, and it's called Marilyn's uh, Mondays. And uh, she she's uh, doing the healing energy workshops. And uh, it's called Nutmeg's Ojai House, located at 304 North Montgomery Street in Ojai. For appointments, uh, give Marilyn Salas a call. She's Robert Salas' wife, 805-640-1656. And she does this energy healing, and uh, they have some awesome meditation things going on over there. You can also find them online at www.lovesblessing.com. And I have a few announcements uh, for the Serial International. The last lecture event for 2014 is November 22nd, and it will include the screening of the documentary, uh, Top Priority of the Terror Within, and a compelling true story about the length our government will go through to hide the truth. And an award-winning documentary featuring the incredible story of Julia Davis, a national security whistleblower who was falsely declared a domestic terrorist and was subjected to retaliation of the unprecedented proportions by the Department of Homeland Security. Please visit www.topprioritymovie.com. And then following the film, producer B.J. Davis and his wife Julia Davis will be taking questions from the audience and for the first time, they will also be revealed new compelling evidence surrounding the strange and sudden death of actress Brittany Murphy. Remember that, that beautiful young girl. So they're saying that it wasn't an, an accident or a natural death. So anyway, uh, they're asking for any type of donations, and you can get a copy of the movie, and um, I'll say more about that later in the month. Um Anyway, then Sunday, October 26th, the Ciro group will be meeting in Burbank at the secret location that you know, and uh, we'll see you over there. And uh, for also for November coming up, uh, the Star Wars conference will be held at Aquarius Hotel in Laughlin, Nevada, hosted by Paola Harris, November 14th, 15th, and 16th. It's coming up really fast. 
And then, let's see, remember to save your money up for the big Christmas party. Uh, it's about 60 bucks a person, and that would be, uh, you go to www.serialinternational.com, and uh, I think you go to the donate button. And anyway, it's 60, I guess, it's actually 6117. And it goes to Ciro, and it's for a big party in the Queen Mary. And bring a gift, get a gift, and it's really awesome. And next week, we're having a Jackie Bear at Psychic Medium, and we're going to be having a seance and all kinds of crazy things because we're building up to actual, um, you know, Halloween. So anyway, at this point in the program, I'm going to welcome on board my co-host, Adrian Rudnick. Hi, Adrian. Hi, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm all tongue-tied, but I'm doing good. Um, Adrian, yeah. um, why don't you tell the listeners about yourself? Because you, you have a, a, some, a really interesting background, and why don't you tell them a little bit about what you do in yourself and your website? Sure. Um, I'm especially excited to tell, uh, spend one minute about myself, given our guest. I'm a philosopher. I have a BA and MA in philosophy, and my whole um approach to ufology, well, not my whole approach, but mostly my approach to ufology is from a philosophical perspective, and so my writings will be reflective of that. I have a UFO site called ufophilosopher.com. It's also a website where people can go kind of learn about ufology because it's a good resource. Um, my website's actually being in transition, so it's a really good thing that you ask me about, but I'm changing web hosting companies, so there might be a time where, a short time where it might not be up for a week or whatever. And then my email is not working at the moment, so I apologize for anyone who tries to contact me. But feel free to contact me. I do research on, on the side. I'm interested in uh, abduction stuff. Um, people can always send me their stories about abduction or, or contact me. Um, I'm not a hypnotherapist, but a straight researcher, and I'm always interested in, in data of that sort. Uh, so anybody can always contact me and share, tell me who they are and contact me. So there you go, and I'm, and I'm excited about the guest uh, that's on your show tonight, Shar, because he's also a fellow philosopher in the analytic tradition. Yeah, he we is. We had the pleasure of talking yeah. with him last time. Isn't he a great, just a great human being all over a besides what he does? Yeah, Dr. I mean, Raymond Moody has an incredible background, and you guys have, like, a similar things going on. And because uh, I was really, uh, I'm reading his book called The Paranormal, My Life in Pursuit of the Afterlife. And uh, it tells about his uh, his development of his uh, psychology and philosophy at uh, as a medical student, and that uh, he was studying Plato. And it was just very interesting background. And uh, this book is he's a really he's fascinating. Sorry. And what he says in this yeah. book is kind of a shock because he's talking <laughs> about life after death for himself that he um, had past life regressions and things like that, and things I didn't know about. So uh, he's really he's really honest. He's really honest, isn't he? Very about, honest. I mean, so so open about his own personal experiences and battles. Yes, he is. He's he's really honest. Now I'm going to try to call him in. I have sent emails. I left him a message early this morning, and uh, I haven't heard from him in a couple of days. So I hope all is well. I think he's in Alabama. Okay. And they're a little bit later, so uh, I'm going to try to call him into the show right now because I haven't heard anything yet. So let me try. I'm going to call him in. Actually, this next month will be the that we talked to him a year ago, believe it or not. 
Oh, really? It's, it went by that quick? Yeah, it was last November. Oh, my gosh. I know. And I thought, I've been living off of that for the whole year. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, I can't see. believe it. It just seems like we just talked to him like a few months ago. I know. Okay, so I'm going to try. So, um, let's see. It goes. Is he out of state? Where is he located? Do you know? As far oh, as the yeah, state. Oh, we got, we got a ring. Hello. Hi, is this Cheryl Moody? This is Raymond. Oh, Raymond. Sorry, Raymond. How are you? This is. Uh, I'm doing well, and thank you for this. Oh, we're just so excited to have you on, and we're just talking about you that um, you're live on the Paranormal and Sacred right now. We're just uh, talking that actually next month will be last year that you were on my show, and we were so excited then. We've been living off of that ever since. So we see you now. So. So well, we just thank you. I'm just you. delighted to be on. Yes, we're very excited. And how how are you, Dr. Moody? I'm sorry. What did you how say? Are you, how are you doing? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm. Uh, yeah, I, I really am. And um, looking um, um, forward to talking with you tonight. How long are we going to be on so I can pace my answers? As you may remember, I. Tend to go on and on, so. No, you have two hours, so you can be at your leisure, really. Okay, so, good. Yeah, so you have the full two hours, and you can just uh, talk whatever you want to talk about. And uh, we are. Uh, I'm in the. I'm almost to the end of your book, uh, Paranormal: My Life in Pursuit of the Afterlife. And I'm telling you, it's it's kind of an incredible book. It's actually your pr- very personal life story and, and the experiences you had and how actually you created Life After Life, the, your your first book. That's right, yeah, yeah. It's uh, It was uh, done with my friend Paul Perry, yeah. So how have you been? I've been doing really good. I mean, you know, I'm actually excelling in my personal life that, um, that I feel that my personal experiences along the line of Life After Death that continue to this day that um, have really given me hope and uh, the stamina to keep going. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, I had a recent experience where uh, that I was walking down this gray kind of big tall wall hallway, and I was walking and walking, and there was a man in front of me kind of, he was in khakis and he had like a black belt on, and he was walking backwards, but he was He's motioning me to keep going, keep going. And I told him, I said, it's taking too long. I'm tired. You know, how uh-huh. long is this going to take? And he kept waving me, come on, just a little further, just a little further. And so I'm dragging myself along this hall, just tired. And then I go around the corner, and there uh-huh. I see paradise. It was so beautiful and sparkling, right. water and mountains, just sparkling and beautiful. So beautiful. It's so beautiful. I said, "Oh my God!" And it woke me up. And <laughs> I continue to have these kind of blissful experiences. Oh, great! How old are you now? You know, I'm 62 now. I'm 70, and uh, it's funny you should say that because about the last oh, nine, ten, eleven months. I've been having the most unusual experience I've ever had in my life physically of just uh, 
I don't know, I guess what we call it, a whole body euphoria. And uh, never experienced anything like that. I've been an exerciser all my life. And uh, I, um, uh, until about a year and a half ago, I would walk six miles a day. Then I had an injury and uh, sort of ignored it and uh, went my full six miles anyway. And then I was off my feet for 11 days. So the doctor who knows me uh, gave me a severe warning not to um, not to start back immediately, you know, like to take it to start back gradually. And when I got up to about three or four miles, I started... I realized I felt much better than I did when I was walking six miles a day. So, uh, yeah, I've, um, 70 at least, or this period of life is a good time, I think. Yeah. I think it is. I think in many ways you you start to mellow out and appreciate more. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. I'm still striving, yes. but I'm still, you know, I still have this really kind of good feelings of... Uh, I don't know, well-being, even though I'm struggling in certain parts of my life, it just seems like I'm just moving forward and uh, in a good way. So, you know, at, at this point, I want to introduce you to Adrian Rudnick. I don't know if you remember him. Adrian, mm-hmm. would you like to say hello to Dr. Moody? Yes, good evening, Dr. Moody. Is, Hi, uh, how are you? Yeah. Yes, um, I also, I don't know if you recall, but I also have a, uh, I have a BA and MA in philosophy. I yes, I remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, BA at Cal Poly, and then my master's I got at Cal State LA. So, and I've had my own um, out-of-body experiences. So I'm especially just excited that there are um, a lot of trained philosophers that are into this. And I'm going to ask you a question, which you've probably heard millions of times, but it's for the purposes of the audience. I'm, I have some friends who have philosophy backgrounds who are probably listening, hearing you for the first time. And I, I know their question, obvious question would be, how did you get into this near-death experience stuff? <laughs> what attracted you to this being a professor? Plato. See, I went to college at the age of 18 at the University of Virginia my first year with the intention of being an astronomy major. I had been interested in that and still am since I was seven years old. And um, But I'd gotten interested in philosophy a little bit in high school, so I took a philosophy class, and um, the first thing they gave us to read was Plato's Republic. And as you know, in the last part of that book, there's this amazing story of a warrior who was believed dead but revived. And um, that was just, you know, everybody, I guess, who's read the Republic remembers that story at the end. And um, I found out... Yeah, the myth of Ur, and I found out from my um, professor who taught that course, Professor Hammond, that um, the early Greek philosophers studied these people they called revenants, um, or people who were believed to have died and come back or been revived. And um, so... uh, it was my interest in ancient Greek philosophy, really, and um, so that's how I got started in being interested in it. And then in 1965, I met a man who was a professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia, Dr. George Ritchie, 
who had actually had such an experience. And um, so my initial contact was just the relevance of this to the study of ancient Greek philosophy. And um, so then when I became a philosophy professor myself in 1969, um, I, when talking about this kind of thing in my philosophy classes, I quickly realized that uh, Lots of students had had these things, too. And then sort of word spread around about it. And uh, back in 69 to 72, I started getting invitations to these um, civic clubs, which at that time were an exclusively male province. And I would go to these uh, meetings because they, they, you know, they have to have a lecturer every week. And... Um, and I quickly found that um, these men and these these civic clubs who were the movers and shakers in this town, that it, it never happened that I went to one where there wasn't somebody there who had had such an experience. So that's how I got started. It was uh, specifically related to um, Greek philosophy. How would, um, not from a psycho, not from your psychological training, someone might ask, um, I'm, I'm obviously I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards your view because I, I've had my own experience, but someone might ask um, who's listening, well, well, Dr. Moody, how, how can you tell they weren't hallucinating given your psychological background? Did, how can you tell they're not making it well, up? Or you know, some sort of mental phenomenon? You know what I mean? Well, as you pointed out, I, I both, after I, was a philosophy professor for some years. I I was only 24 when I finished my um, PhD in philosophy, and I'd always been a kind of you know driven by knowledge as as you too, I'm sure. And um, so I decided I wanted to go back to medical school. So I did, and I became a uh, psychiatrist. And um, about the term hallucination, I, you know, I think there is such a big misunderstanding about that term. Um, that is a medical term, and and uh, when I am wondering whether a patient is hallucinating or not, it's always in the context of what we call a decision tree, right? Like you. Like, what does this person tell us, and what do we find, and so on. And and the point is not is to um, to decide what we're going to do for the person, right? So it's it's a clinical term that you use in a um, in a medical uh, decision tree or or a process you're going through with the aim ultimately of giving you a decision at the other end of what to do for this person, right? Well, what people try to do is to use that term hallucination, not clinically, but epistemologically. And that's the error, I think, because um, it's not an epistemological term. And if you're in the medical context, then it has to be, well, if you're trying to apply it as an epistemological term, uh, what you're doing essentially is to put your um, uh, view of the world ahead of the patient's, right? 
And so, I mean, I just don't think the term hallucination makes any sense in the context of trying to figure out the um, nature of um, near-death experiences. Most hallucinations are auditory. Um, visual hallucinations are um, take place in delirium, um, and um, temporal lobe epilepsy, for example, but not in the in the uh, you know I mean it, it's I think it's a misnomer to to try to um, apply that clinical term hallucination to a a sort of complex visionary experience like people report when they almost die. That's my opinion. How did you come up with the term? Because you are the one who came up with the term. Well, I did, and I'll tell you the truth. I've never particularly liked that term. I always thought it sounded kind of awkward. In 1974, uh, when I was writing my book, you know, obviously I had to have a term. And when I started lecturing on it to medical societies and so on, and... um, so I tried, the first thing I tried was perimortal visionary experiences. But I had this great professor of hematology, um, uh, Russ Moores was his name, who very kindly encouraged me in my work on this subject from the first few days I got at medical school because, you know, I... People in the medical school knew that I had done this research when I when I came in to, as a medical student, and um, so Russ said, you know, I think correctly that uh, perimortal visionary experiences is too medical sounding for people. So I went back and I I thought near death experience. Well, the reason I thought that was good is that obviously these are not death experiences, right? Because if um, if you're dead, you're dead. <laughs> if you're dead, you don't get back. And uh, but we do commonly talk about people being near death. So that was what it was. Near death experiences. Although, like I said, I've never been so. Um, I've always thought the term sounds pretty awkward. But um, I, I think, in a way, we can um, we can. Um, spread it out past near death now. I mean, identically this same uh, kind of experience of people uh, leaving their bodies and um, uh, seeing a light and seeing apparitions and so on, and and even um, the experience of seeing a panorama of one's life. Um, All of those aspects of what we call the near-death experience commonly occur also not to people who almost die and are brought back, but to bystanders who are present at the death of someone else and who are not ill or injured, but who report that during the dying process they may see whatever you would call it, a spirit of a dying person leaves the body or um, or themselves say that they leave their body and, and accompany their dying loved one 
partway toward this light. Um, and people say at the bedside that sometimes they see what appear to be apparitions of the dying person's um, dead friends or relatives coming into the room as though to escort them away or say that the room fills with light. Um, and and so I think it's it's a more complex phenomenon than than, than just um, you know something that happens to people who almost die in return, but it's uh, it's also um, the same thing also happens very often to people who are not ill or injured themselves, but who happen to be there when somebody else dies. So you have you. Yeah, excuse me. There, ahead, there, um, okay, what I wanted to talk about too was uh, the beginning of your book that um, you're talking about Plato, and I thought this was so beautiful, and it reminded me of why that we're we keep talking and talking and talking about all this. And you have written here, Plato also writes that talking about the afterlife is a form of incantation or magic words. Yeah. Yes. We ought to repeat them to ourselves over and over to arm ourselves against the vicissitudes of life, he says. Yeah. And that kind of inspired you to actually start writing out your uh, thesis for your book. And uh, I just found that so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that is the reason why we keep reporting these stories back to each other like that. Yes, I think, you know, the people who call themselves parapsychologists, I'm sorry, I think that's just pseudoscience. I mean, um, in um, 2014, it's it's just not realistic to say that this kind of thing can be, or the question of an afterlife can be a scientific question. And, and that's not saying anything bad about the afterlife question, which is the most important uh, question, I think. But it's a philosophical question. It's not yet a a scientifically determinable question. And um, in that regard, um, nobody has ever really come near, I think, the degree of uh, uh, understanding of the afterlife question than Plato did. He he said that um, the way he analyzed it um, he talked about the developmental aspect of it. And the Republic, for example, begins with the observation that he makes that, um, if, well, to, to put it in a nutshell, that the afterlife question is partly a developmental question. And, and by that I mean it's, it, it's something that occurs to people naturally at a certain stage of life. And uh, in the specific uh, seen in the Republic, what it's about is this older guy, probably about the age I am now or younger, and his name is Kephalos. And Socrates, who's then in his 20s, says, Kephalos, you know, I maybe will be your age someday, so tell me, what does life look like from from your vantage point of, of your age? And Kephalos says, well, Socrates, he says... Um, I've done very well in my life. He talks about his business and so on. And he said, um, so I spent really all my energy on that. And, um, and, and he said, now that I'm this age, he said, those stories about the afterlife I heard uh, 
when I was a kid are coming back, and and he develops this sense of urgency about this question. Um, well, I remember when I got into psychiatry, I, I did geriatric psychiatry before, but for a while before I did uh, forensic psychiatry, which is uh, worked in a maximum security unit for the criminally insane, but. Um, uh, before then, I did a lot of geriatrics, and I had, in addition to my Alzheimer's patients or Pick's disease patients who had dementias of various kinds, um, I had plenty of people who were very cognitively sharp but who were there for some situational stress or whatever. And um, and I constantly heard that. I, I, it really, I woke up at that point, which was, say, about 1980 three or four, somewhere along in there, um, to the fact that, you know, Plato was an amazing ob- observer of human nature, and because uh, he's absolutely right. I heard that same thing from people all the time, that um, when they got into that age and they'd been very successful in their business, and so- suddenly around the age of 60 or so, they start waking up to how important this question is. And then Plato went on to say that, um, you know, you you can never, um, he said, you can't talk about this this, um, question without a story going with it. And, And the basic point he made was that the notion of a life after death, which is it's it's sort of blatantly self-contradictory, really, to say there is life after death. That's a self-contradiction if you look up the words of the dictionary, because death just means the final irreversible cessation of life. So the sentence, there is life after death, is unpacks to there is life after the final irreversible cessation of life which is a self-contradiction. So Plato said, you know, the the notion is so obscure. He said that we have to have some kind of storyline to go along with it, some sort of narrative. And the kinds of narratives that they entertained then were about the same kinds we do now, the stories of people who almost died died and were brought back, for example. And... um, but then he went on to say that, in effect, even if we had a billion stories, it wouldn't add up to um, a proof of an afterlife. He said, you've got to have some sort of set of concepts to go with it. And he, Plato was writing even before there's such a thing as logic, as you and I know it. Um, Plato's student Aristotle was the person who formulated logic that we still use in the West. But Plato really didn't have a code of logic yet, and he was trying to do the best he could, so he used... um, And when he was trying to solve the problem, he tried the the Pythagorean table of opposites. Um, At the time of Pythagoras, the the most articulate they were about this question of a, uh, any kind of thinking process to answer a question was in terms of a table of opposites, like up, down, light, dark, uh, male, female, and so on. And that's how they tried to figure out things. And um, then Plato had this idea of the theory of ideas or forms and uh 
he said the things that, that are real are not really the things we see, and uh, that the real things are things we know. Um, well, for example, everybody knows what a circle is, right? A circle is a plain geometric figure, every point on the circumference of which is equidistant from the center. And everybody knows that concept. But the trouble is, nobody's ever seen one. If you take the the top of your Coca-Cola can there and look at it, you say, well, you know, that's a circle. But no, if you get a micrometer, you're going to find that there's all kinds of variances and so on, so that nobody has ever seen a plain geometric figure with every point on the circumference to, uh, equidistant to the center. But nonetheless, we know full well what one is. And so he tried to solve the problem with that uh, sort of framework too, the notion of ideas. And um, But my point here is that he, uh, he, he really thought this through. I think what happened in the um, late 19th century was the pseudo-profession of parapsychology got formed. And by then, everybody was, um, you know, people were so impressed by the... Um, accomplishments of the scientific method, which had been going on for about 300 years then, that everybody wanted to get in on the science act. So um, they tried to make this a matter of science, and they formed the uh, profession of parapsychology, but that's just pseudoscience. It, I mean, it shows, I think, that if people think that um, that science is going to give them the answer to this question of an afterlife. It's a it's a defect of of critical thinking, is what it is. It's, um, in my opinion, uh, people who, uh, you know, have that kind of point of view, the parapsychological point of view. It's it's a very specific defect of critical thinking. It's um, they sort of already have their idea of what is, and then anything they do with these so-called experiments is going to, you know, confirm their presuppositions. So, so, but, you're, not, you know, you're, not, you're not suggesting that um, not looking at it from a non-scientific point is less rational. You still, you're just saying it's not science because one could say, if I remember in your last interview, if you would eliminate us again, that um, philosophy is also a rational system, just a different. Type it is. Of That's what I'm saying. That right. It's. It doesn't mean that it's irrational. That's exactly. See, people. Um, you know, a big mistake that we make in uh, 21st century America is called scientism. Is that um, reason is a much bigger circle than than science. You draw a big circle in front of you, and then you put a smaller circle inside of it, and that smaller circle is science. But reason is a bigger thing, and that includes philosophy and history and literary theory and the law and so on. So my point is that, yes, it is a rational question, but it's not a scientific question. It's still over in the philosophical category. You know, along with the philosophy, that uh, what I found interesting is that uh, you were kind of attacked from all sides. Either you weren't religious enough, or were too religious, <laughs> or you know, uh, it's crazy because all you were doing was being honest about your findings. You were getting the data, talking to well, that's um, right. hundreds and hundreds of people, <laughs> and 
you know, it's uh, actually uh, people. Tell us about that. About how how religion plays into this. Well, you know something. I I do think. Yeah, it's. Um, I I hear that all the time that poor Dr. Moody was persecuted, <laughs> but in reality, um, I I was received very well by my medical professors. That. Um, just within the first couple of weeks of when I went to the Medical College of Georgia, uh, I think it was eight professors contacted me to say thank you for doing this research. The first of them, the first was a wonderful man named Claude Star Wright, who later was one of my um, hematology professors. And Claude had resuscitated a patient that he was very fond of. Um, and the, when he did, the um, patient yelled, don't ever do that to me again. And Claude was just you know, flabbergasted, and he talked to the guy who he deeply respected, and this man had told him about this amazing experience. And um, so I got a lot of good my, – my, my medical school professors were very supportive. Um, where I – Got the gaff was from the fundamentalist religious community, <laughs> which was startling to me because I just uh, I was uh, 11 years old the first time I ever set foot in a religious institution, and it it was happened to be a synagogue with my friend um, who was his mother was taking us somewhere I forget where, and we had to stop by the synagogue. And then when I was 12, my dad started dragging us to this uh, Presbyterian church for about three or four weeks. <laughs> and I was just, what is this? And um, and so uh, fortunately, that was just a brief time because dad, as I later calculated, since my dad was 26 when I was born, when I was 12, he would have been 38, and I recognized that myself as a psychiatrist as being what Jung called the turning of life, where very often people start seeking some kind of spiritual thing. But fortunately, it didn't last very long. And I, uh, but that was the the large part of the um, gaff was from fundamentalist religionists and. Uh, which was quite shocking, and then I finally realized, well, it's kind of amusing, too, because, um, you know, I mean, it's like fundamentalism. It's um, it Once you invoke that term fundamentalist, it doesn't matter a hill of beans what follows the word fundamentalist, right? Christian or Jewish, Muslim or Marxist, they're all the same people. And you got to admit this, it may sound... Like, well, this is shocking for to hear, but but everybody listening to this is going to have to admit that the mullahs over there <laughs> in Iran and the the funda Christians here that we have and the fundamentalist Jews, it's all the same group. And number one is zero sense of humor. You know what passes for humor with that group is harsh. Biting satire. Look at that that gosh awful fanatic Pat Robertson, who I just love to watch because, I mean, you know what a great um, 
I mean, I study fanaticism, and and there you go. I mean, there he is, there he is, and that tight-lipped smile. Does that look like a smile to you? No, it's a, yeah. it's a um, sort of a tight-lipped grin, and so they don't have any sense of humor, and um, they've got the answer, whatever your question is, and unless you. You know, unless you repeat the answer back to them, you know, then you're going to hell, right? And um, so to me, at at first it was shocking, but now it's kind of funny. And um, I'm really happy that that group has received its comeuppance and the political thing, right? For a few years it looked like they were going to be ruling us again, in which case they would have brought back the stake, I'm sure. I mean, the fundamentalist would be burning people alive today for not uh, subscribing to their religious beliefs unless it was for, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, essentially. So, But, um, you know, that's to me just, um, it's part of the, the comedy of life, really, to to watch these fundamentalists. It it kind of reminds me of <clears throat> when I was a kid down at the um the um the drugstore in Porterdale, Georgia, there was the scale and it said um your your uh weight and fortune for a penny. And you would put your your one penny in, and you were supposed to put it beside the slot of your, the month of your birth, right? And on one side of it, it was January through June. The other side was July through December or whatever. And so you'd put your penny in, and this little card came out with your weight printed on it and some incomprehensible message like, Beware in affairs involving a friend today. (laughs) And I've always thought once I got to observing the species that fundamentalists are like that. It's kind of like, you know, you put your penny in and you ask a question and and then this incomprehensible message comes out like, Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer or whatever, but it it comes with an implied threat, too, that unless you mock this back to them, then you're going to hell. (laughs) So, um, yeah. yeah, Well, it uh, it seems that prior, okay, whatever your religious experience or whatever you've been brought up or whatever is, the near-death experience, though, has brought up some extraordinary results that, um, let's say, people of Islam are dreaming about Jesus, uh, uh, it's it's very odd that it seems. Well, to it is very odd. Get rid of and um, yeah, what I've noticed is uh, whatever. Lots of people who had no religious um, background or beliefs, at least according to them, prior to this, nonetheless had very dramatic experiences. And um, one thing I have noticed over the years is that. It tends to make people more, you know, they come out saying some, more of something like, um, well, you know, that I, I found in my experience that all of the great religions had some truth to them or whatever. It, it seems to be um, to turn people away from a strict 
denominational framework to something more uh, universal in scope, I suppose. Yeah, like there's a universal uh, experience that uh, it doesn't matter what the religion or what the belief, because some people... Yes, yes. I don't think God uh, cares if we join a religion or not, (laughs) in my opinion. Yes, and atheists are actually having this uh, blissful experience of a higher power also. Yep, yep. Of course, I think, you know, in reality, you can't absolve um, atheists of religion. As a matter of fact, it's, you know, religion, I mean, atheism is a kind of religion. It's, um, I've noticed, for example, I I think it was in... um, USA Today, maybe, a few weeks ago, I saw this article about how now the atheists are setting up a church. <laughs> and um, and I think this is so funny because what it said in the article is that a lot of them are saying, well, that they, have the, they don't believe in God, but they have these uh, great good memories of being a child, of having the church community and so on. And I say, baloney. <laughs> And let me predict that one of the this is I hope this sort of atheist church thing goes um, through and that we get to watch the drama of it unfold because I would predict that at some point, of course, they'll split into two. Right? That's always what happens. As soon as there's a new religion, it splits into two. Right? Because um, a lot of the um, the point of a religion has to do to is is to exclude your fellow man. That's part of what it means. It's um, you know uh. it's like I'm superior or you know that I've got the or this is the right way. And the, so I mean I'm just hoping to watch the development of the atheist church as it develops its own theological disputes and so on. So I think. Um, God without religion is my theme. I've and I think it's uh, people ask me, well, do you believe that God exists? And I say, no, absolutely not, because number one, I Raymond Moody am a very limited uh, human being with many many flaws and limitations, and that surely any belief that I Raymond Moody could formulate about God is bound to be off base. And secondly, if you if you notice and you sort of attune your ear to it, you hear these people say, do you believe that God exists? Well, what is the emphasis of that sentence on? It's the word, on the word exist. To me, God is bigger than the category of existence. I mean, I can symbolize existence for you as a logician that I can't I can't symbolize God and and what I'm getting at here is to me God doesn't belong in the category of uh existence God God is or belief God is a relationship to me so what I say is I have a relationship with God yeah I feel like the same way I have a question, hey, given the, the, na- the nature of extra, given the nature of the um, of the discussion about the, the different religions and stuff. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Panvin Lamo. He's an MD, he's a cardiologist. Oh yeah, yeah, I know Pam yeah. very well. Yeah. 
Yeah, he wrote a book on Conscious Beyond Life, and um, I heard a, a, an interview with him on Coast to Coast, and um, he made an interesting observation. I'm wondering if it correlates with your observation or data, if you wish. He, uh-huh. he noticed that those have had and um, near-death experiences predominantly then become, um, using using um, non-academic terms, um, becomes more spiritual and less religious. That is to say, if one is, for example, um, a Christian, they will tend to go to church less, but at the same time they become more spiritual because they see there's something more than just the book, as, as, as they say. That's and, and so my on, impression. So that's... With other religions. Does that match up with your experience? That is what I've concluded, you know, just years and years ago, too. Yeah, it's, it does seem true that when people come back from this, um, they tend to become less denominational and to be more concerned with the big spiritual issues and so on. Yeah, that's right. They even become, so. well, ironically, they even become more, um, more than think, okay, they're, maybe they don't go to church and become spiritual, but are they, you know, more into, they're actually more active in the world. They appreciate the world more and all that sort of thing. They meditate more. Um, yes, that, yes, that I can think, too? yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. It's uh, it's not so, uh, that's right. Now, now, I know plenty of cases who people who say they kept going to church or kept on attending religious ceremonies and so on, but it's, you know that's a very general thing is what I hear a lot, yeah, that uh they realize after this that um you know that religion is one thing, but you know that that no religion can contain the reality which they sensed while they were nearly dead. How about an american style atheist, not the like Buddhists or or Jainas, which technically are an atheist religion, but I'm, what I mean by atheist is like the North American type, or very physicalist. There's nothing except the physical. Have you ever had someone who was like that, and then they confided in you? You know what? I've had this experience, and I don't know what to make of it. Hmm. And they, they, you they know, really have epiphany. I don't know. I. You know, I'd have to think about that. I mean, there's been so many thousands now. I nobody of that specific description pops into my mind, but that 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 may just be the limitation of having so many, you know, cases I sort of carry around in my head. I don't remember any specific case like that. Yeah. Well, what about you? How were you initially? Were you initially a religious person or just you didn't no. care. No, I never. Yeah, I was uh, like I said. I went to the Presbyterian Church for a brief time during my father's midlife crisis, and um, once I joined up with a Methodist church, which I would never do again. <laughs> at mm-hmm. the, you know, just to please my wife. But uh, no, no, I'm I'm not religious. I mean, in the sense that. Religion to me is partly a way of avoiding God. It's uh, I, I think the important thing is to have your per, a personal relationship with God, and it doesn't require any sort of belief or any sort of 
existential assumptions. It's a a relationship. It is, and, uh, you know, I I have some examples. One that I I actually took a note of in your book, uh, Dr. Moody, was uh, that you were talking about uh, that some people say, oh, there's no proof, it's a biochemical. Then you go ahead and talk about people that actually, after they left their body, that they would actually see things in people or they see part of their surgery, and they are actually correct. Yeah. And one patient in particular saw a shoe in a particular place. Do you want to tell oh, us that's a You know, that's an old story, yeah, about the lady who saw the shoe. And there are cases like that from time to time that I have seen quite a number of things like that, including I guess the most remarkable to me was the that I ever knew of was a woman named Vi Horton, who in May of 1971, at the age of 35, had an extended cardiac arrest during a uh, um, during gallbladder surgery. And um, I saw all sorts of things, including her. Uh, and incidentally, I got to know the family very well, everybody in the family, and everybody told me the story from their point of view, which was really interesting. And, um, for example, one of the many things was that she said that when she was out of her body and realized that nobody in the operating room could see or hear her, she went outside of of the room and into... Um, the areas in the where her family were congregating, and um, she said went down this one hall, and she saw her brother-in-law standing there. But of course, he didn't see or hear her. So, um, so um, she said as she was just watching him, she said a friend of his came up. And she said the friend was surprised to see him in the hospital and said, well, what are you doing here in the hospital? And her brother-in-law said, well, um, I was going to Athens today to visit Uncle Henry, but it looks like Vi's going to kick the bucket, so uh, I'm going to stay around to be a pallbearer. And so when a few days later she came to in the uh, recovery room, and her brother-in-law came to see her, um, she said that very thing back to him. And she said, the next time I die, I want you to go on to Athens to see Uncle Henry, because I'll be fine. And that brother-in-law told me that that event totally changed his life. So, yes, there are plenty of cases like this where the uh, people describe things that, according to our conventional way, they couldn't possibly have known. But the trouble is that even this really doesn't give us any sort of proof of an afterlife. And and the reason is that the problem with proof of an afterlife is that um, we don't know Excuse me. There's no logical system for computing the statement that there is life after death, and and uh, this was pointed out very brilliantly by um, David Hume, who lived from 1711 to 
1776 and was, for example, a friend of um, Ben Franklin's. And um, um, David Hume was a friend of Ben Franklin, really? Well, he was. I remember there's a oh. story where Ben went to Hume's house one day and left a note. I forgot what the story was, but yeah, they oh. they knew each other, and um, so. Um, but Hume was the person who uh, s- sort of uh, uh, brought attention to some aspects of the inductive logic that's used in science that hadn't been articulated very well, and um, and also uh, explored the notion of causation. So, in a in a very real way, you could say that Hume was part of the process that led to the development of what we today called the the uh, scientific mind and Hume pointed out that the logic we have doesn't work for the afterlife question and that that um, as he's put it that some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that uh, that logic and I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you think it through logically, you see that Hume is right, that it's a logical problem, not anything that that science is going to be able to solve for us at this era, but a conceptual problem, and that um, we have to develop some new rational principles. And that, I think, can be done. I, I just I have no doubt that that Hume's criterion it has been fulfilled, that there are new ways to think logically about things that in the past we haven't been able to think logically about them. Right. Now, I mean, yeah, maybe... yeah. Go ahead, Adrian. Go ahead, Go ahead. Sir. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go Are ahead, you, sir. Are you sure? Yeah. Well, I yes. want to talk about the, the six components of... Uh, because uh, you had developed uh, six components of what you described as a near-death experience, and that the people generally go through these uh, six uh, areas. Did you want to speak on that? Or? Well, uh, yeah, I think that it looks to me like, the, uh, in, in terms of the ones that I've talked with over the years, which have been thousands now, um, I think the... The primary things are this uh, experience of um, being separate from the body, and um, uh, very often the experience of going through a passageway, and then an experience of coming out on the other side in this incredibly brilliant and warm and loving and comforting light. And uh, the experience of panoramic memory in which people tell us that everything that they have ever seen is displayed around them there in a sort of panorama which takes place instantly, although they have to, since language is sequential, when they relate it to anybody else, they've got to relate it as though it were a sequence. But they say in the experiencing of it, it's not sequential that everything is there at once at the same time. And another way of saying that, of course, is that people say that in this experience that time is is unreal or that it is um, 
uh, it is not really a, a factor in this experience, and that they find themselves in a timeless realm. And then, of course, the experience of coming back, and in the cases where this is of this full-blown experience, it's um, uh, uh, life-changing. People say that after this, no matter what they had been chasing before, whether it was power or fame or money or, uh, as in my case, knowledge, uh, that they realized that that was kind of an illusion and that what this is really all about is the process of uh, growing and developing in the uh, and the ability to love. And so I think those are the main, uh, or at least the elements of this that are of most interest to me and that seem very, very common in these, these stories. Go ahead, Adrian. Uh, well, I like what you said about the, the logic because it's true. Log- um, and that science at this point, I like how you said that, that science in this um, era can't, do it yet, but perhaps like what Robert, um, I'm sorry, Thomas um, Kuhn, the philosophy of science, he said, you know, purported that there needs to be, when there's a change in science, that's this sort of a paradigm shift, just a whole new way yeah. of, of thinking. So I, I, I totally like what you said. Um, I have a, qu- a question given um, we just did it, and it just occurred to me, um, we talked, you mentioned about sort of a life review. What is Given your research, uh, all your data, why do people have a life preview? What is the purpose of it? Does this suggest that maybe reincarnation is true? That is to say, if one lived a certain life, then okay, you go there. But if you live a certain life, then you go over there, or you're allowed to move on. What does that suggest to you, the fact that there is a life preview? I honestly don't know. One problem I have is that I think that we're in a situation where – the language and the concepts we use in this state of reality that we're in now um, don't transfer over to that other state. In, in other words, that um, and, and that's what people with near-death experiences tell us, that uh, no matter how articulate or well-educated or uh, how many, ever, however many languages they speak, People come back from this and they say there are no words. I mean, this is just uh, beyond words, and that's kind of what I've I make of it. I think that it's probably futile on this side to try to get the exact details straight. Uh, I go back to Plato, who said that we're in a situation in life like we are. We're like horses with blinders on all the time, and that there's a lot of the picture we're not seeing. And not only that, that um, that's the reason we're here. In other words, that you go into this state so that you can have the blinders on for some other sort of indecipherable purpose. That's that's the way I've, you know, as close as I can get to it. And um, Ellie Wiesel, who is kind of a hero of mine, I um, thought he was just such a wonderful man. And um, Ellie Wiesel said in one of his books, um, oh, yes. 
God made man because he, capital H-E, loves stories. And that's very apropos. I mean, one of the the classical problems of, of philosophy is what is a human person? And, you know, what is the... What is personal identity? And it started out with Plato, who more than anybody else sort of formulated this notion of a soul or the zuke. And and Plato's view of it, see, is that the soul is an immaterial entity which inhabits the body. And um, so that was sort of taken up into medieval thought and so on and and, uh, apparently uh, made into church doctrine and so on. But then you get up into the 15 and 1600s and people are realizing, well, you know, that's none too clear. I mean, it's maybe a pleasing word or it brings us comfort or whatever, but what do we mean in the first place by it? And so then along came Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, who made the famous statement that it was nonsense to say. He said, you know, it's like they talk about an immaterial substance, the soul. And he said that's nonsensical. And um, then you get um, Descartes, you know, the, the mind and the body are two separate things. And then you get into Locke, who begins to realize, well, what is it that constitutes our identity? Locke says it's our memories, right? It's, it's, right. Uh, and then you get to Hume, who says, well, there isn't anything. <laughs> he says, you know, I've looked inside of myself, and he said that I, the only thing I can see going on is particular thoughts or ideas. He said, I can't divine any thing underneath it that's supporting those things. And so, you know, that's sort of how the history of the notion of personal identity is gone. But um, I think of it differently. I think of it as a as a narrative thing. See, it's like, what is a human person's identity except that store that person's story, right? And it's, um, I guess I've developed a sort of um, narrative theory of identity. I think of um, Shakespeare, all the world's a stage, and one man in this life plays many roles. And um, I read a playwright not long ago who said, a play is just a um, life with the boring parts taken out. And in reflecting on this, I'm, um, back in the time I was doing lots of geriatric psychiatry, I heard that all the time from people who were very, um, like I said, they weren't demented. They were people with uh, situational things and all. And, and elderly people, to my delight, they love to tell their stories. And uh, so, you know, there I was just sitting, listening to these wonderful people tell me about their lives. And uh, one comment I heard uh, repeatedly was from people in their 60s and 70s that the older they got, the more this uncanny impression developed when they looked back on their life that it had been a kind of script. And I heard um, Joseph Campbell say that same thing in one of his uh, um, 
video programs. And now I'm beginning to see it myself. And so I think this, that this is kind of um, this existence we're in that the basic unit is stories. The, the, the universe is made of stories, not of atoms. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess part of the stories is that they're atoms, right? But the the primary thing is that uh, is narrative and story. And um, it then you know somebody listened to that and say, well, that's just a metaphor, right? That I'm taking the uh, this one human institution, the theater, and I'm expanding it out as a model for the whole, which would be a fallacy. But no, I I don't think so. I think it's the other way around. I think the reason why we have the stage and drama is that people like uh, Aeschylus and Euripides and Sophocles, who were excellent observers of human nature, had just figured out that aspect of human life themselves. And they figured, well, we can flatten out a place here and condense this. And um, so I think life is narrative. And in terms of the allusion you made to the uh, reincarnation, I, um, that that makes a great deal of sense to me in terms of the narrative because, you know, what a, a life would be is, is that person's particular story. I think it's very interesting that in that essay that he did on immortality, Hume at some point said something like that. I'm sorry, it's been you know years since I read that essay, but I'm pretty sure he says in that essay someplace that that he felt that the only um, idea of life after death that a rational person could entertain would be the idea of reincarnation. I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly his rationale for saying that. But it certainly is, it makes uh, increasing sense to me the older I get. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah I'd like to ask you something, Dr. Moody, that um, you also uh, went through uh, past life regressions. I have never done this. I've been under hypnosis, and it seems like I'm, I can't, I'm not suggestible. I don't feel like I was blocking it, but I, maybe I wasn't ready uh, Are you like a compul- little bit compulsive? I am compulsive. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people with compulsive personalities, and I, you know, I mean, I, I had two doctoral degrees before I was 31, so, uh, you know, you can pretty much mm-hmm. count me in that category, too. Okay. Uh, uh, but... So if I didn't um, tell me something, I was, like, getting, if I was getting ready to freeze, like, What? <laughs> No, no, it's, uh, but, you know, compulsive personality is a very adaptive uh, way of being, and, and uh, that's why the, the the system keeps working, because of compulsive people, so there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, um, uh, it does tend to, people who are compulsive, by and large, it's a little harder to hypnotize us, because we're, what we're doing was we're sitting there waiting and thinking, is this it yet, right? Like you tend yeah. to analyze it too much. And um, so I just happened to have a really good um, hypnosis instructor who could break through with that to me. So, I mean, I finally, I got it, and I can get really deeply into trances, but um, it it definitely is, I think it's harder for a person with compulsive tendencies because you tend to overthink things. 
I agree. But yeah, I've had uh, past life regressions, and I got to say, I was um, I went into it, and I will let my prejudices hang out here. I I was interested in reincarnation because that was such a that also you see was a very uh, deep seated part of early Greek philosophy. Pythagoras, for example, said that he remembered eight of his past lives. And um, Plato wrote extensively about reincarnation. And Empedocles, who was the evoker of the dead, who lived on uh, um, uh, Sicily, uh, on Mount Etna, at an oracle of the dead, and was also one of the early um, the pre-Socratic philosophers, uh, was also a reincarnationist. So that was my interest in it. And back in the 80s when I heard of these past life regressions and so on, and I I had uh, just read a little bit about it. I, um, but I just, to tell you the truth, I just thought it was... I had sort of fallen prey to the thing you hear about, oh, everybody is either Napoleon or Cleopatra and only very histrionic and uh, suggestible people are are susceptible to this and so on. So I went into it with that um, idea, and and I got to say I was just really astonished uh, and surprised that it was quite different from what I had imagined. Um, It still didn't indicate, I mean, it didn't make me think that these things were real past lives. I just didn't know what it was, but I knew it was very different from what I had imagined. Um, one thing, it's not a daydream. I I am just a skilled and inveterate daydreamer. I used to, all through, through grammar school, I was just worried all the time as, you know, that my teacher might call on me and interrupt one of my daydreams or something. And I, mm-hmm. I'm still a very accomplished daydreamer. But this was not a daydream. And number one, I know that in daydreaming, I see images, but they're kind of foggy. And also, I have a conscious experience of making it up. And it's not at all like a uh, memory, because I'm, uh, I'm, I have the conscious experience of putting one element after another, sort of making up the story as I go along but this was nothing like that this first of all the images were kind of um i guess i'd say hyper photographic reality it was just like watching this going on and also uh, when the images came up i had the it's like i remembered them was the feeling i had um but it you know i mean it was a very impressive experience but it did not lead me to think that there's reincarnation. Um, nor did any of the things I've read. I, um, Ian Stevenson was a very wonderful person. I loved Ian. He was a, I acquainted with Ian. I liked Ian and all, but and and I, this is Ian has passed away now, and I'm not saying anything behind his back because this was. How he and I talked, I, you know, he, uh, I always told him I just didn't think he was a very good critical thinker, and um, I don't. And um, he, uh, you know, he, he 
he just was not a good critical thinker and uh very pseudo scientific in my in my opinion um so it wasn't reading any parapsychological works or anything else that got me uh to thinking that there is something to reincarnation but what happened to me that turned me around with it is that both of my kids have informed me <laughs> that it's real <laughs> and um i am and, and and also i i fully forgive anybody who's listening to this and saying oh yeah he fills those kids full of this stuff and so on. but no that i mean I, and i can understand how somebody else would think that but i know that it's not it, it's not correct it um, for example, my wife and I don't talk about life after death. We talk about what's for dinner. You know, it's like how we're going to pay the phone bill. Okay, how to help the kids with their homework. What's on at the movies this weekend? And my kids, who are now, we have two adopted kids, both adopted at birth. Um. And they don't. We don't take them to religious institutions or anything. And um, and also, just fairly not too long ago, they found out that I wrote this book, <laughs> Life After uh, Life After Life. By they found it out on the internet. <laughs> so there, you know, that's that's the reality of my daily life. But both of my uh, adopted kids have. Related out of nowhere, and just nowhere, um, detailed memories of where they were before they came to us. And I should emphasize, they were both adopted at birth. My my son Carter, who's 16, the obstetrician just delivered him him and uh, put him directly into the hands of my wife. So, you know, this... this, um, so you know, I I believe them, <laughs> and um, you know they've convinced me on this one because um, they both related things that I specifically remember uh, before them ha- uh, happening before they were were born. Wow! Yeah. So they're not. They and it just came to... out of nowhere in both cases, and in Carter's case. He and I were lying on the bed watching uh, TV, and I was using the remote control to change the channels. So I flipped through what turned out to be the National Geographic channel. And when I did, Carter became very, very animated. And he said, Dad, Dad, that's my village. So I said, what? So I turned it back, and it was a National Geographic show about village life in China. And so, to my utter astonishment, and you kind of learn in psychiatry, you know, not to react. I mean, it's a very helpful thing, and sadly, you would kind of take this over into your personal life a lot, too. So, I was just, I mean, I was flabbergasted, which I'm sure he picked up on, but but I just listened to this, and he he um, he told me, he said, yeah, you know, before I came to you and mommy i was with my other mommy and daddy and my brothers and sisters in china and uh just went on and on and on about this and my little um native american daughter who's blackfeet by culture again we adopted her at birth 
again, just about three year, three and a half years ago, just out of nowhere, um, on our walks we used to take. She's a, a natural-born gatherer, I guess, coming from a culture that was hunter-gatherer for 20,000 years, and she's picked those things up. So over that period of time, the the women who just had that in them were the very ones to survive. And so even when she, oh, she was very little and I would push her in the stroller, she wanted out. And when she was three, she started walking six miles with me and carrying what she called her nature bag to collect little animals and uh, plants and so on. And um, so she, about three and a half years ago, on one of our walks, just started discoursing learnedly about uh, how she had been with God. And she said, and God pointed you out to me. And he said, uh, said, you've got to go down to be his daughter. And uh, and she, too, she just brings this up like Carter still does once in a while. So, you know, I mean, what am I to make of that? I, you know, yeah. I, I give up. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Are you, do you want to take a, a caller? Sure. I, have a question. I think you're calling uh, area code 613 from uh, Ontario. Where are you, by the way? Yeah. Where I'm are in, you? Uh, Hello. California. Hello. Uh, your first Hi. name, please. I'm Chris, and I'm calling from my my first name is Chris, and I'm calling from Madoc, Ontario, Canada, which is a yes. small town uh, in between the big cities of Toronto and Ottawa. Well, thank About you for calling in. in. Do you have right... a question for Dr. Moody? I do. Um, I had a couple of experiences that I want to share with you and get your thoughts on. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an experience uh, when I was quite younger, and uh, my grandmother had passed away when I was young, and I was really close to her. And years after her passing, I was still in my early teens, I guess, when this happened. It was like a dream, but it was more than a dream to me because it was um, it, it was something. What happened? I don't believe that my mind could comprehend, like make it up, you know what I mean? Yep. Uh, and what happened was it was like an out-of-body experience where I found myself um, traveling uh, without a body at very high speed through a forest. Mm-hmm. But then when I, I came to a, a stream, and I, uh, then I slowed down and I was in body. And on the other side of the stream was my grandmother who had passed away. And I noticed her, so I started to head towards her. And she said, no. Chris, she said, don't come any closer. And I said, well, I want to see you. And and Uh she said, well, you will one day, but now's not your time. She says, I want you to do exactly what I say. She she said, I want you to turn back and walk back and don't look back. And I said, well, Grandma, I want to see you. And she said, you will see me one day, but it's not your time yet. So please Uh do as I say. So I said, okay, I love you, Grandma. And she says, I love you too, and I'll see you soon. And so I I did I walked back and that was that was the experience and like I say I I believe it was an out of body experience I don't believe it was just a dream because I couldn't comprehend my mind to my knowledge anyways I don't think my mind could comprehend that uh, at that young age. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Chris. And I've heard many things like that, and um, you know, and the same kind of um, well, you're obviously touched by this and so on and. Uh, 
yes, I mm-hmm. think that what you experienced is part and parcel of the experience of being a human being. And that idea of a border or a limit, uh, like the stream in your case, which I gather you weren't supposed to go over the stream or something, right? No, no, no. She didn't want me to cross the stream to get Yeah, there. yeah, that's I, it's a, a border or a limit, uh, which people instinctively feel that if they go over that, that they... Um, there's no coming uh, back. That's right. They wouldn't be able to come back. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, yeah. the the instruction to go back, that it's not your time yet. Yeah, again, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, um, I am not trying to put any sort of uh, final interpretation on this, but but I do where I am in my thinking is, is that um, I think that these things can that that under certain circumstances we get into situations where the the limit or that boundary between this state of existence and that other state of existence kind of gets porous or fluid yeah i i, I see hear that from people all the time and very often they say um for example People will say that in, while they're asleep, that they enter into this other state, and they say, "I have to say it was a dream because mm-hmm. I was sleeping, but it wasn't a dream." And and that's mm-hmm. just like you're saying that it doesn't have the quality of a dream. And as a matter yeah. of fact, they often say it's. It's far more real than the state of consciousness that you and I are in now. I, I hear that mm-hmm. a lot too. That it's yeah. a hyper real state, more yes, real than know, real. Yes, and I've had several experiences through my life like that uh, in dreams. Like I, when I was much younger, I could actually control my dreams, but I got scared oh. because. I would control them to the point where then they take a new life, and it would. And I got scared, and I backed off from it. <laughs> and I, I've, I've never been able to to, to fully get, back get that way it. again. Yeah. yeah, but I've had other experiences. And just last night, believe it or not, I had a dream, and I believe this was kind of a dream because, uh, but it was it's still strange. And what it was was I was floating uh, above this room where several people were gathered. And then I noticed my brother, who had passed away, has been dead almost three years now, my -hmm. older brother. Mm -hmm. And I noticed him sitting on the couch in that room. And then I noticed him looking up at me and noticing me. So I kind of floated over to him and I said, oh, you can see me? He says, yeah, I can see you. And I said, well, I said to him, what's going on? And he pointed to a crowd in the room and he said, well, listen. He says, they're talking about you. So I turned to the crowd, about four or five people, and this one guy was standing there with a drink in his hand, and he said, yeah, you know, that Chris was a kind of a nice guy. And then I woke up from it. And I realized I was looking at my own funeral or something or awake. Wow, that's interesting. Life is is so astonishing. It's just, uh, it's... um, you know, I am a logician at heart. As I said in my book, um, 
life after life at the very beginning i said you know i have to take into account the my at the very beginning the prejudices i bring to this as i said and i and i specifically said that you know i was philosophy phd with a primary interest in logic and philosophy of language and um ancient greek philosophy and that is still very much how i see these things and and um and yet where i am beginning to um perceive this in my own world view is that i think that the greeks were right and that um there were these early figures uh called the walkers between the worlds like one of them was named Atalides, who was sort of neither here nor there who sort of halfway between the worlds and i gather that maybe you have a little of that characteristic yourself where you um can uh penetrate between different state of ex- states of existence um and I believe you, that's so true. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. uh, my brother. Um, I had a. I have a very brilliant brother who is also very uh, practical. He's a, his work is um, construction, or specifically, he owns a company that does paint contracting, which is you know a, a job that would drive the average person, including me, crazy. But he handles it very well because of his ability to deal with the world but um years and years and years ago he told me that this dream that he had had again you know i have to say it's a dream because he was asleep but he said he suddenly came into this situation and my mother and father who had passed away were there and uh i think my anyway several of my um uh relatives who had died and and um so um he said that there among the uh relatives who had died was my uncle Talbert who at that time was very much alive who's subsequently passed away but my brother was puzzled at seeing Talbert there among all the other dead people so he um he <clears throat> was expressed puzzlement about this and somebody there told him well that Talbert is a kind of person who is uh you know he can go back and forth and and the interesting thing about this was that Talbert and I can say this quite honestly I mean you know it's just uh, he was one of the finest people I've ever known in my life he was um, my family is partly Cherokee I had a Cherokee mm-hmm. um great grandfather and uh and not so much in my generation but in that previous generation a lot of my uncles and aunts and all had that sort of native american look and talbert more than anybody else you know he had this typically native american face and the shock of straight black hair and um to show you what kind of person he was he had a long career in the post office and then he retired. He's getting right out of high school. He started working for the post office. Now, remember how diligent he, he always was. He took his work 
home with him and learning how to do all this sorting of mail and stuff. So um, anyway, after that long career, and he retired, uh, then he thought, well, you know, I need to do something for the community. So he went down and he applied to run for some office in the county. I think it was county commission or something. But he, um, you know, he did, and he got elected, and he served his term. And But he never again went down to the courthouse to apply to... Um, to to run again, but he <laughs> he got elected. I don't know how many times in a row, just because people wrote him in. And the reason was that, of course, mm-hmm. the average situation was people would get into that office, and pretty soon they were into graft and all the other things. But Talbert was just sort of completely unflappable along those lines, that he just was totally immune to any kind of stuff like that, just so... Um, deeply wonderful and fine, fine person. And um, so it make, would make sense to me that if there are walkers between the world who had access to the, you know, both places at once, he would have been one of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've also had the experience of um, being in the future because I I. I kept dreaming of this is going back many years ago now over 30 years ago now i kept on having these dreams about this girl that i never knew very pretty young girl dark hair and each dream i had of her was different and i remember the last dream i had of her before i actually met her and i met her at a friend's school dance a friend of mine said of you know our school's having a dance do you want to go i said sure i'll go and i met her and right away she wanted to go out with me and I, like a fool, said no. I was so stupid to say no, but at the time, yeah. um, she just did something that I didn't like, and I thought I could do better than that. And and so I didn't go out with her, but I kick myself today. And, of course, I'm happily married now to somebody else. But, I mean, you know, back then, I, 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 you know, I mean, now, from doing that back then, I kick myself, you know. But I believe that that was, you know, a higher power, we'll say God even, uh, telling me this is the girl, you know, for you. I'm choosing uh-huh. for you, and but I, yeah. I declined her. But I, I didn't understand it at that time because I was still, I was still in school, quite young, and uh-huh. maybe I had a bigger head than I should have had about myself, I guess, at that time. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've had a very similar experience, and uh, you can muff. You really can. I mean, there's situations where the timing is. Like I think back on a lot of things I've done in my life where if I had only been the, you know, like if I had only taken a different action, then things would have gone mm-hmm. another way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Chris, so much for calling in. We really appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you, Chris. And you're, yeah, well, you're very welcome. Mike. It's very important. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for yeah. listening. Okay, thank you. You guys thank have you. a blessed night and uh, all the best. Thank you. Okay. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, I was just going to ask you that. So Chris hit upon it. Um, what do you think about, because um, we do, look, we do, you know, pass life regression. What about future life progression? I don't know much about that, but I do know something related, and that is, um, 
You know, I've always been suspicious of time. I um, I think it's, I went, you know, I, from the time I was seven, I wanted to be an astronomer, and I still followed that very closely. But uh, as I look back in my life, it's very plain I did the right thing by becoming a philosophy major because um, I remember very early in life, um, I quickly became aware that there's something wrong with this setup, right? That, you know, it is not what it appears to be. And that that I've been comfortable with all my life. And um, one of the first things I quickly realized as a kid, that there's something very wrong and incoherent with this notion of time. And um, mm-hmm. when I got into... Uh, Kant as an undergraduate, you know, I said, yeah, yeah, this guy's the, you know, this is this is right. It's, you know, that we think of time as something out there, but no, time is something in here. And it's... An inner, um, an inner sense of, like an inner sense of intuition, correct? Yeah, that was kind of what he got. And it's, uh, or or the way he put it, it was, it's the... It's the what, like the um, precondition of our experience, right? That That's it's right. Some, right. yeah, that we it's something we bring to the situation. And um, I asked uh, David Deutsch not long ago. I read something. He said he said that um, the the notion of a flow of time is so deeply embedded in common sense that we can't we probably can't expunge it. But nonetheless, it's just nonsense, <laughs> and I, I think that is right. I, um, you know, time is there's something very suspicious about it. My wife is very brilliant, and and at the same time, she is not intellectual at all. She uh, went the art school route, and that's where she put her um, brilliance was in that side of life, and. Um, you know she she's just not intellectual but uh we were sitting around the, around the table a couple of days ago and uh, we were reflecting on this uh, this giant who was sitting there with us at the table who's our son Carter and uh, you know of course I can remember just like it was yesterday holding him in my arms and this little tiny thing and now I sit across the table from this man who's about, you know, just about my height. And um, and six, and that was over 16 years. And so, you know, we got to thinking that, you know, and I said, you know, it, it, I'm really sensing this now in a very real way, which I'd figured out in my mind many years ago, but now I see it in a different way that, yeah, you know, there's something very suspicious about this notion of time. It's, um, I think it's possible to kind of um, to walk in time. I, I had a friend who did it. I, I didn't realize until years later that he did, but I, I see now that he did. His name was Dr. George Ritchie. This first, uh, the psychiatry professor at UVA was the first living person I ever knew who had had the near-death experience. I heard his experience in 1965 when I was, uh, let's see, 20 years old. And um, so, um, but I 
I just kind of figured out uh, af- after this event happened that he did one time. I mean, it's just it's too complicated a story to tell. But but my point being that uh, yeah, you know, time is is it's a necessity for um, ordering things in this state of existence we're in now. It's very helpful. But it's it's not a part of the bigger picture, I think. Right. Perhaps it's like um, maybe both is correct. Kind of like in uh, quantum mechanics, um, things can be at two states at the same time. Perhaps time is that way too. There is a past and future, but at the same time, there isn't, depending on where you are, as you suggested. Um, I have a question. Are I was thinking about the senses when you were talking a while back about um, uh, certain things, and I thought about, like, you know, in our physical bodies, we have, we can see, we can hear, we can taste, we can smell, we can touch. But it seems in our, I guess, lack of a better word, the spiritual and metaphysical experiences or out-of-body type of stuff, seems like they're seeing and hearing and touching, Okay, seeing, okay, we not necessarily see with our eyes, those are having any yeah. but they see something. They can clearly hear something, right, even if it's not with their ears. That's they right. Clearly, they can clearly have a sense of touch because they'll say, feel a warmth, you know, so that's a sort of a touch. But I haven't heard anybody, unless you've heard something, anybody talking about tasting or smelling <laughs> in the afterlife. So maybe those No, I can't recall anything like that. But I can't, I do know this, that what people tell you is that um, the senses are different. They have to use the words because those are the only words. But, for example, in what we would say vision, people say that you can, for example, just by focusing or or um, putting your attention, you can see through walls or you can... Um, Zoom lens, or, or so that the senses are different. And I, I, people generally tell me that it's when they're on the other side, they don't hear voice voices. They say it's not it's not like a physical sound, but it's rather that you become immediately aware of what the thoughts of the other person are so it's uh it's some other sort of transference than by the by than by physical senses and people will also tell you for example that um when they're on the other side they they see very brilliant colors that don't exist here so uh i think that when people talk about seeing things and that sort of thing that really they're they're struggling with words, and that basically the sensory um, or the sensorium, I guess you would call it that, is also quite altered when in this um, other state of existence. And doesn't Plato say something about that, doesn't he? In the Phaedo, remember the story about the true earth where the, the Colors are more. Be- I, I can't rem- recall it right away, but um, I do remember. I think there's this thing in there about the colors are more vibrant on the true earth. He says. Right, right. So in other words, maybe the language, because we're using the language of our physical senses, and this is 
something different. So using the wrong yes, language. and the language. That is right. You know, it's um, as a philosopher of language. You know, I mean, I you know, language is, is very important. And um, I've had a very interesting experience as I've um, traveled around the world over the last 40-something years talking about this. And um, one thing I find is that Americans, I mean, you know, we came from the Puritans and all like that. It's very practical, right? And in the United States, often when I get to talking about some of the the necessary issues in talking about life after death, I hear people say, oh, that's just semantics or whatever. But I've never heard that criticism in Europe. And, and I think it has to do with uh, practicality. I mean, in the actual world, I mean, in this state of reality, um, you've got to talk about the language to talk about uh, the whole question of an afterlife. Is And uh, getting back to something you said about the quantum mechanics, I remember um, when I first studied quantum mechanics back in the 60s, what the quantum mechanics people were saying then was that um, they wished they had a three-valued logic because the uh, logic that we're using as we're thinking right now is a binary code, essentially, thanks to Aristotle, like true or false. Um, But there is a third option, you you know, and and that's that not all uh, declarative, indicative sentences are true or false. Um, Some of them are unintelligible, right? And, um, for example, if I say holiness breeds the vestigial lipstick, of spontaneity, that's a perfectly well-formed grammatical sentence, but it doesn't convey a meaning. And so what we need, you see, is to to think rationally about the afterlife is a logic of, of unintelligibility, which is what I was alluding to earlier. Now we we have that. There are... Um, the way I would put it is that unintelligibility itself is an intelligible phenomenon with an, with its own structure. It works by its own um, inherent logic, and um, so I think where the 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 breakthrough in afterlife studies is not going to come through science. What it will come through is conceptual analysis. And I think what it's going to be is that it's just like David Hume said. The logic we have, the Aristotelian logic, the binary code predicated on literal meaning, just won't work for sentences that are not literal in meaning. I mean, when you say, um, there is life after death, it's not, or there is life beyond the, you know, the life beyond or whatever. You're not talking um, in literal meaning that can be processed by the the uh, classical logic. So, but I don't think that's any problem because we got ways now to think logically about things that heretofore uh, we couldn't think logically about. Right. I mean, perhaps maybe we. Um, I mean, you're you're into ancient philosophy, perhaps. Um, it seems like a lot of disciplines evolved from 
philosophy, the scientific method. They did. All from, of them did. From yeah. us. Maybe conceptually it will have to come from us, meaning philosophers. Maybe in a sense it's already started, started to look at ancient philosophy from a different continent. For instance, like in China, we talk about Taoism. They seem to embrace um, um that's right, and what we would call self-contradiction. Like it's, it's, it's normal, and they, they they talk about the limits of life, exactly the kind of things that you say, but yet they embrace that. Perhaps you should go from that, you know, evolve. Yeah, yeah. Um, how is the logic? Yeah. What I would say is that the clue, the key to solving the afterlife problem is going to be to um, to wake up to the importance of the concept of nonsense, which Plato was very rigorously onto in his Parmenides. He was trying to he realized it was important, but Aristotle and the next generation kinda thought, well, you know, there's this is um anything that smacked of irrationality to Aristotle would be forbidden. And but but um, it's perfectly possible to have a logic of the unintelligible. It it absolutely is. It's startling to think about it, but um, and unintelligibility itself has its own rules attached to it, which is specifically that anything that like a an unintelligible or nonsensical sentence, right? Like um. um Holiness breeds the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity, or um, 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 or we say things like "I love you to death." <laughs> yes, 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 and and that um, what all nonsensical sentences have in common is that they respect some rules of language, but they break other rules of language so that the outcome is unintelligible. And that is an intelligible principle. So working with that, see, there's there's totally new ways of working around what we call the ineffability problem, which is uh, people who have a near-death experience say there are no words to express it. But now we can kind of fix that or modify it so that people who can be prepared before they ever have a near-death experience with new ways of thinking, will, when they subsequently by chance have a near-death experience, be able to bring that information back in a whole new way. So that, in my opinion, is the going to be the future of uh, near-death studies. Yes, and... Um... Yes. We don't have that much time left. Can you believe almost two hours is up? We have about uh, five minutes unless you want wow, to Wow, that's amazing. To this has really gone I fast. Know. And I want to let everybody know um, where they can get your books. Uh, you're a best-selling author of 13 books, including Life After Life. Or is this 14 with the current one? The one you know, I've kind of lost track myself. It's somewhere along I, there. <laughs> yeah, so you've uh, yeah. copies worldwide of Life After Life, and it was on every bestseller list everywhere in the world, and um, you're, you're, the way people in this current book is actually reviewing and going back on how uh, you developed your book, Life After Life, and also your personal life and everything else. So I really advise everybody to pick up this book. I found it on Amazon, Paranormal, My Life in Pursuit of the Afterlife. 
and his website is www.lifeafterlife.com. Is that correct? Thank you. Can people can get a hold of you and go ahead. Yeah, and also I have a one thing I'm really looking forward to that's coming up for me pretty soon is anybody listening to this who can get to Birmingham on um Birmingham, Alabama on November the 15th. We're doing a workshop on um end of life issues and near death experiences and so on. And um so that I'm really looking forward to because I'm going to uh, start um sort of focusing this more clinically because so many people in my age range now are going through this experience of having to take care of elderly parents and uh, and are themselves facing mortality issues and so on. So uh, that's something that's coming up that I'm really looking forward to. Now, what's the dates and the time and the information where that? Can they get that on uh, your website? Oh, you can get it on my website, lifeafterlife.com, and it'll be in Birmingham, Alabama at Unity on November 15th, all day. Okay, and then um, actually if I can get that, I'll get that information. I'll be announcing it in the next couple of weeks um, until November. And then... I really appreciate you taking time out in your life to be with us. Oh, I'm just always delighted to do this. It's great being with you again. It's wonderful. It really is. And I want to let everybody know you're an award-winning author, and you received the World Humanitarian Award in Denmark in 1988, and a bronze medal in human relations category in the New York Film Festival for the movie version of Life After Life. And you have done everything from training hospice workers, clergy, psychologists, nurses, and uh, you work, are you still, do you still do private practice in uh, philosophic counseling? Do you still do that? I do. I do philosophical grief counseling. That's what I do. That's uh, my main, the only um, counseling thing I have left over. And uh, at age 70, it's, um, when I was a young person, I could work in a forensic unit and uh, with, um, the criminally insane because I could still at that time dodge thrown objects and so on, but it's, I'm a little old to do um, that kind of work anymore, but I still do the yeah. uh, the grief yeah, counseling. Yeah, so that's good. So if they want to get a counseling appointment, how do they reach you? Through your website the same way? Yes, that's right. It's lifeafterlife.com. Oh, great. So it's great having you on there and, uh, you know, please come back any time. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. absolutely. I'm just happy to do it. Yeah, we're really excited about having you on and a little speechless. And uh, I, I just think the best of you, uh, Dr. Moody, and I've admired you all since your, since the first book, really. And Thank uh, you so much. having this... you on again. And I wish you and your wife and the kids all the best. You too, and both of you. This has been so nice. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. It was, a, you pleasure. Have a, it was a pleasure speaking with you again, um, Dr. Moody. Very, very, very much so. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good, Good night, night, Dr. Moody. Good night. Good night. So, uh, Adrian, once again, oh uh, just it's so exciting. I almost couldn't talk at the beginning of the show because um, just think of his life history, how much he has 
at such a young age developed himself. I mean, it's it's really incredible the amount of work he's put in. I know two PhDs by <laughs> by the end of his third decade of uh, existence. Oh, that's something incredible. And yeah. how many and books? Thousand... And how many lives he's you know touched and the all the therapy and the goodness he's gone out. You know, when I was reading it, everybody, I suggest you read the book because he's really talking about things that we weren't really, we didn't say a lot of it. There's no time to talk about it all, but, you know, he's had a very interesting personal life, and uh, he's gone through a lot, and he, you know, made it, and he has had actually struggled with illness for most of his life. And despite that, he had gotten so much done. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah, he's, he's brutally honest and, and humble. I mean, he even talks yes. about uh, his, his suicidal thoughts and things of that. So, um it's a man with a lot yeah. of integrity and honesty. Um, Very and much so. Intelligence, yeah. And it's just amazing to think, you know, whenever he mentions like thousands of cases that he always uses the word thousands, like, wow, just imagine all that speaking with all those different types of people all the years that you, you can say that, you know. And the kind well, of you know, what it does is what you feel from him. He has the humbleness of a person listening to thousands and thousands of cases and then recognizing that we're all human, you know, we're all just human, and then we have the soul after and that someday we're going to shake off this what, whatever, what, I don't know, can't think of the word of it, but it was vicitude, that was it. Shake off the vicitude and remind each other of, that's what Plato said, that we have to keep repeating our stories to each other to remind each other that there is a life Life. beyond, and and there is no death, really. It's a sort of a death, but it's just a passing through. And um, if we ever get to talk to him again, which I hope we do, you know, I would like to get into the, uh, he had actually um, past life regressions and all that because uh, um, I don't know much about it. I keep, you know, hearing about it. Of course, I know, you know, everybody's stories and stuff like that, but, Right, right. Um, I don't know. Yeah, to hear, I don't know to hear from dreams of great ancient Greece. I don't know if that's what's happening when I do that, though. Yeah, I mean, um, what was your favorite part of uh, today's um, show? Let me see. Well, um, just I wanted to talk to him about how he met his wife and that um, that he had um, just like everybody experiences when you change. Sometimes you have to go on and leave a relationship and go to another. And I did not know that. And the, But his current family, he just seems so happy, and he gets comfort from his wife and children. And shes I can tell she's very supportive because we email back and forth. And uh, what a great gal. I was going to ask more about that. but He's a very grounded. Yeah, very, very grounded uh, in spite of, uh, I guess he, you know, he also had his own near-death experience. We didn't even talk about that. You know, this is so much right. to talk about. But uh, I have to, let me give you a little bit about next week. Now, next week we're having Jackie Barrett. I don't know if you know who she is. Do you no, know her? She's a she's a famous, uh, uh, world famous psychic and um, psychic medium. And she wrote a book about the Amityville Horror, and she also wrote another book about. Um, the Zodiac Killer, and uh, so she's going to be, oh, she's from, from Louisiana, yeah, so she's going to be yeah, on okay, next week, that's the 17th, 
and I think she okay. wants to have a seance, but I don't know how she's going to pull that off. So anyway, next a week seance? we're going to do a seance or something. And then the week after, we actually have the uh, writer and director of the, the newest Amityville Horror House story. And that's going to be on oh, the wow. week after. And that'll be our Halloween show. So we got a couple of wow. great great weeks ahead, and then we'll go back into the ufology because we're going to have uh, Grant Cameron on and, uh, uh, you know, on and on. So anyway, our time is what almost up. What a great what a great show, so, and I want to wish everybody an awesome good night. And if you want to contact me, leave a message, and, you know, find us on Facebook, uh, Paranormal Sacred, you leave a message there. And that um, we just, uh, as Adrian coined. What? You got, a, you got a Paranormal and the Sacred Book Club, too, on Facebook. I know. I have an awesome book club. So, of course, I put this book that we were discussing all night in there and also everybody else's books. So, if you have a book you want to recommend, um, you're welcome. And as uh, Adrian coined for the for Paranormal Sacred, is a place where the unheard may be heard, and we just want everybody to be heard. That's the way we feel. That's right. well, I have people calling me, and it turns out to be kind of, some kind of incredible stuff, really. You know, that's that's uh, you know, so that's how we hear it, everybody. So, Adrian, tell them more about your uh, thing. I have. Uh, I I start two groups in the morning now. I had to expand. My caseload's gotten so big, so I have to get up very, very early and uh, get over there and actually start a 7 a.m. group, believe it or not, and then start an interview section at 6 a.m. But um, I want you to tell people again um, how they can get a hold of you and uh, your website. And and my website is myufophilosopher.com. I approach ufology um, from a philosophical perspective. That's my area of discipline. For the most part, I, I, I do it that way, and I put writings up. It's in its transition state right now because I'm moving web hosting company, so there's not much I can do. <laughs> I can put any more writings up there. It'll take yeah. a week or two before I get it, find a proper web host and move everything over there. But right now it's kind of on hold. And um, but My email address is adrian at adrianmudgett.com. Temporarily, I'm using my Gmail, adrianrudnick at gmail.com if anybody needs to get a hold of me while I'm doing that. So it's also a resource for yeah. ufology to kind of learn and, and learn more about it. So that's simply what it is. I have a Twitter handle, UFO Philosopher. Very good, Adrian. And uh, I wish you a good um, night. And please say, say hello to your beautiful wife for me. And, uh, I Kathy. shall. Thank you, sir. And I appreciate you. I appreciate that you're having me on the show. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you so much. We need you. So thank you so much. You're so your Halloween will be your two hundred. Your Halloween will be one will be your two hundred show or something. I know. No, I know. I I went after two hundred and eight. I kind of stopped counting this week, so I I don't know how many I've got in. So uh, wow. Yeah, it's over two hundred eight now. So it's been almost two years. So Halloween is our second year anniversary, everybody. So please join us on Halloween. Okay, Adrian. Okay. Good night. You take care. I wish you a good night. And thank you so much for being our wonderful and splendid co-host. Your your intelligence and especially speaking with him. I mean, you know, you guys have the same interests and degrees, and it's profound, really. It's a small world. It is. Very strange. Thank you. It is. Thank you so much.
You're very welcome, Adrian. Good night. Okay, good night. Good night. So good night, everybody. It was a wonderful show. Please come back next week. Take care. Bye-bye.